Welcome to another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? Doing very well, Jody. How about yourself? I'm doing just dandy myself, too. Awesome. Glad to hear it. What's on the agenda today? We are going to expose five more mixed tips. You won't believe number five. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, five more mixing tips. These are actually a little bit more geared towards instead of things that will be applicable that you can kind of do in every mix. These are a little bit more of things that you should maybe try to avoid doing. Still important, right? Let's just dive right in. The first one here is something that we have expressed in past episodes. It is not having your tracks properly prepared or organized in your mix session. Why is that? Nothing stops a mix faster when you have to suddenly go, wait a minute, there's noise on my vocal track. I must edit this out. Or, oh, geez, the start and stop on this particular instrument is in the wrong spot. I now have to edit it to the proper spot. And that creates issues with the flow that you are in when you are attempting to do a mix. Absolutely agree. There's nothing more of a buzzkill than you're sitting there and like you said, oh, there's background noise in the vocal file or whatever it is that you might not have heard initially, but once you start adding a little compression or whatever, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. When you have to stop and go back and fix those, like I said, just grind your mix to a halt. Do this first. And another one that is important there is the organization of tracks. Yes. Right. If you only have a few tracks, let's say, you know, less than 30, it might be less of a deal. Oh, come on. Once you you push past five, it's a deal. (laughs) Yeah, it is. But I'm saying, like, if you're dealing with, like, 10 tracks, it's not that hard to keep track of. But if you're dealing with 110 tracks, it's a lot more cumbersome. What I'm thinking here, and this is, again, something that you and I have talked about, but it's color coding and grouping tracks and having them laid out in your session in a certain order that you'd like them to be. It just makes any mix much more manageable. So that's an important step before you even start thinking about applying EQ or compression or anything like that. Have everything nice and organized. Yes. Point one is essentially saying get your tracks organized so that you know where they're at in your mix and make sure that all of the editing that needs to be done for the individual tracks in terms of noise and other farts and pops that are in there, all that's done before you start your mix. Yeah, and I would even add to that when it comes to certain things like if we need to tune something, have that done before you sit down and and start mixing. Of course, of course. Yeah. What's up next? Relying too much on plug-in presets. This probably garners a little bit more of an explanation because this one sounds kind of loaded, I guess. Does it really? Um, Well, I'm thinking because we create our own presets and things just to save time. But what I'm thinking about here is relying on you got that new channel strip plug-in and you pull up, hey, this is a kick drum, and you pull up that preset for a kick. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. Without necessarily listening to and what's actually going on. Not to assume that just because you're pulling up a 
preset for whatever track you're working on that it would be appropriate for the track that you actually have in your mix. Yes, I would agree with that. Another thing with that, sure, when we're learning, it, it can be a good starting point in a learning thing, perhaps. Like when we're looking at, okay, well, what type of compression is here? What what frequencies might be boosted or cut on whatever instrument, right? right. But it is not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to all of that. And still, like not every mix is the same. Right, So it doesn't need the same processing as well. The other thing that I would point out when it comes to checking out plug-in presets on items, a lot of the time plug-in presets do not tell you what the input gain is going into that preset. Sure. That's going to affect the way that preset sounds drastically. Now, granted, you and I have been harping on what kind of levels would be appropriate in terms of a gain stage. And there are others that are professionals on social media and internet sites that also do the same thing, talk about gain staging and all that. This is highly important to plug-in presets. If you have a plug-in preset that's, say, gain staged for minus 18 dB, and you're pumping minus 9 through it, well, it's going to react very differently <laughs> <laughs> yes. Than, yes. than what it was meant for. By the same token, if you have a plug-in preset that is saying, okay, this was designed for something coming in at minus 12 and you feed it minus 24 dB, it's going to maybe not react at all or react again very differently than what the intended plug-in preset should be. Absolutely. I always thought that presets on things like compressors especially mm -hmm. is really weird to me because it is so dependent on what you're feeding it so yes. certainly with thresholds and things like that that would always change right because you need this certain level to go in and get the desired effect another thing that i want to bring up as we're talking about plugins here and mentioning gain staging another important thing that i would say is that when you're applying said processing, make sure that you match the output level of the plugin to what it is coming in. Mm -hmm. And we might've mentioned that in the past as well. It is really easy to get fooled just because you slap a compressor on and, and all of a sudden it's louder because the makeup game might be cranked, right? Yeah. So it's like, ooh, louder is better, right? <laughs> exactly. But you're not really listening to what you're actually doing to it. It just sounds louder. So again, I think there can be a little bit of a danger with presets when you're doing that. Mm -hmm. I so, agree with that concept right there. That's why I'm saying, I don't think I've ever seen a plug-in manufacturer actually express what the input gain is to any plug-in preset ever. I don't think I've ever seen no, it. Have you? I, I don't think I have either. Right. But then again, nobody wants to read uh, a manual anyway, right? <laughs> Where it could actually be in there. It's like, hey, you know, make sure that you hit it at minus 18 or whatever. Mm -hmm. The overall thing are the over-reliance on presets and not rolling your own, especially when it comes to things like basic processing like EQ and compression. Sure. And for that matter, don't assume that it's needed on every track either. Another That's point I want to make for a talk lot of people. Oh, sure. Absolutely. It's like, oh, I so, got a EQ but and thing, everything, especially if you're using a console plugin. It almost begs to say, hey, twist my EQ knobs and punch in the compression, please. 
Right. That is a great way to learn the plugin, right? Mm -hmm. When you start doing that, dive in and see how does the high shelf react? Does it get brittle or just, just bring a nice sheen to it? You listen for those things. Still, of course, it doesn't mean that that's appropriate in every track, but that is a good way to, to dig in and, and learn it. As we're talking about presets and kind of like rolling our own, I want to mention, though, that this should not be confused, in my opinion, with mixed templates. Right. Because that can be a huge time saver. And it just has to do with the setup of the sessions, right? And also the organization of tracks and, and color coding, all the kind of stuff that we mentioned in point one. But another thing that is a benefit of this is like if you're doing an album, let's say, nobody does an album these days, but let's say for sake of argument that you are, right. you're going to get more of a conformity across the album that you're, you're shooting for, assuming, of course, that the tracks are in a similar vein that, that you're working on. Sure. So what, what kind of stuff, as we kind of like touching on this, I know we've talked about our mixed templates, but, but what do you tend to have in your mixed template when you have that set up? Well, the only thing that is included in my mix templates is the console arrangement in whatever template it is. I have a plethora of them, as you know. SSL, Focusrite, Helios, Neve, API, etc. They're set up mm -hmm. just like a console is. So all I have is the console that is dedicated to that particular template. I don't include pre-made reverb or delays or any of those type of things with effects. I have all of my routing set up and I have all of my grouping set up and I have them all on a particular console arrangement. Any effects or anything else get added as I am working the mix thinking, okay, I'm going after this sound. I now need to add this into this grouping. Because as you know, I mix to stems, whether it's an artist or production thing, which changes the workflow a little bit. You do actually use pre-made routing for particular effects, if I'm not mistaken. Not necessarily the routing. I just have my favorite reverbs and things in there to be called up. Uh -huh. So they're sitting there, but nothing is routed to them. But what I wanted to get to there as well is like there's no basic processing going on apart from the console emulation. You don't have, well, this is going to be my kick drum. No. And here's the EQ. That's all nulled out. If you Correct. Right. I start everything at center, so to speak. Right. There's no, yeah. there's no plus, there's no minus on any of the EQ. All compressors are turned off. The only thing that is turned on on relative value is high and low pass filters. That's it. Oh, okay. So, but you actually include that, but that's because it's it's a your standard thing that I do. Pretty pretty that's what you can do. Standard right? fare, and rather than worry about standard fare, I keep those turned on. Okay, makes sense. Moving Number on. Three. What is the third one? The, having a set it and forget it mindset when it comes to tracks. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? This is this is something that also we've touched on in the past. When people seem to be afraid of using any kind of volume or pan automation. Mm, yeah. So in other words, like, okay, here's the tambourine. It's going to sit here at this level and it's going to go through the entire track. Mm -hmm. That might happen. Through other elements of the track, it's important to think of it as kind of like a living, breathing thing, right? Even if it's just subtle changes in either panning or volume just brings life to a track, especially mm -hmm. with more 
tracks that are more upfront, let's say like vocals, or it could be a lead melody line. Those will, for me anyway, a lot of times have volume and possibly also panning automation just to have something change as you, as you move across from section to section. You know, in song. speaking of this, I was yeah. driving today in the car listening to an older King's X song. Something in the song that I'm sure I've noticed before, but it just jumps out at me right now as you're saying this. Mm. The guitar part hits, and as it changes from one section to another as Ty Tabor is playing the riff, you hear the actual effect of the guitar move off to the right-hand side in the switch of the sections. And I noticed that today driving in the car. I'm sure I've noticed it before in the past, but it like stuck out in my brain today. And you just bringing this up is like, oh, hey, there's an example of that. <laughs> yeah. No, but little things like that, that might be for the listener, just like subconscious, right? You don't necessarily leap out at you. They are these little things of interest as opposed to just a super static mix that for the same reason can just sound boring if nothing is changing. It's important to adopt a mindset where there are elements in your track that are just living and breathing or should be in a mix, I think. Yeah. And by the same so token that, or by the flip side of the same token, not everything in the mix needs to be automated for volume and panning. Yeah. Truer words have never been spoken, Jody. <laughs> because, <laughs> let, well, let's say, for example, like the snare. Mm -hmm. You're unlikely to just individually have a massive, certainly not panning automation, but, but even volume automation on the snare. Now, that doesn't mean that you might not have slight changes in level on your drum bus, for example, right? Mm -hmm. That might be pushed a little bit more in the chorus or whatever. It doesn't mean that everything needs to sound like the proverbial Vegas casino, right? Where <laughs> everything is just happening at all times, right? Right. That's important to keep in mind as well. It is. And other things that are important to keep in mind are words from our sponsors. And we're back. What is next up in our five mix tips, making number four? A mix is not a democracy. You'll bite your tongue. No, I won't. <laughs> it isn't. This is something that it took me a minute to learn, but it is an important lesson Sometimes we try in our mix to make everything audible at all times. Mm -hmm. It simply doesn't work. We need to keep a few elements that are the main driving force of the song, the important parts of the song. And those are, for me, the, the vocal is always important, assuming there is one, obviously. Right. And the kit, the drums, mm -hmm. they're, they're always going to be up front to me. That doesn't mean that everything else needs to get equal level in the mix. A tambourine is not going to have the same importance as the main melody and so forth. So, Well, the other thing is if, the relative volume and bringing up something, say, like the tambourine. And if you're going strictly by watching your channel strip meters or your VU meters on particular channels, you could put a tambourine at the same minus 18 dB value as you would an electric guitar, and then you run the two of them together. Guess what one is actually going to sound louder, even though they are showing the same volume? Explain, sir. The tambourine is going to cut through and bite your head off, generally speaking. 
mainly because it's a much higher pitch type sound. So you're generally going to mix that further back. It's not always going to be your driving factor, I wouldn't think. Even though it's got equal volume as the electric guitar in terms of what the meters are showing, the actual perceived volume might be coming out a lot louder. Yeah, and you're kind of hinting toward here what's going to stick out, obviously, in the mix because of frequency masking where everything lives, right? right. If you're dealing with a tambourine that has more high-end material in there mm -hmm. or high-frequency material, it's not going to compete with as much as the body of the guitar that's going to compete with bass or keyboards and vocals and all these things because exactly. they occupy the same frequency range. I suppose this could be like... 4B, but it's also like don't mix according to numbers. Just don't like, well, it says it, it's lower here. Just always listen, of course, and, and place it accordingly. Yeah. Right. A tip I would give that, this is probably going to sound obvious for a lot of, of people listening, but to those that are not, it's, it's a good tip. When you're working on your mix and you're feeling like you kind of have it in a ballpark where it's like it's almost getting there so till it's done, mm -hmm. right? Is to just simply listen through your mix and pay attention to first all those parts that are really important in the mix. Mm -hmm. Can I hear the articulation in the vocal throughout the mix? If it's not, there are elements, well, then you need to work on perhaps a vocal ride there or whatever happens to be. And also when there are important parts in other instruments, let's say that instead of just having a pounding bass such as holding down the low end, there might be a little bit of a, of a bass line that is not really heard as much as you want it to be. Mm -hmm. Make note of those and make sure that you do like a little bit of a volume automation there so that everything sits right but there are a few things that are more important and that's where the automation mix. factor comes back absolutely you know it's it's shocking how we can sit and we're listening to trying to get the groove and making sure that that snare really hits as hard as we want and we're so focused on that that we perhaps don't hear that wow that keyboard is really loud you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like so just focusing in on each individual instrument in different sections just to make sure that everything is sitting in a space where, where it is appropriate for that mix is a really, really good thing to just take a couple of passes on listening to individual instruments. Exactly. If all of this fails and you're struggling, what do you do? It's tip number five. Don't be afraid to start over. Take everything back to zero, all the EQ and compression off, take all the automation off, all the processing, start over. How often do you do that? Not as much as I used to, mm -hmm. uh, thankfully, <laughs> but it's a great reset because in the past, I've noticed that with, with mixes, I have for want of a better phrase, sort of like painted myself in a corner where you're constantly trying to fix things. So I got to try to do this and then another issue arises and you're trying to get around it and you're more and more processing. It got to a point where it's like, okay, this mix is now unruly. Right. And we can save that mix version, but then just start fresh, remove all the plugins, like you're saying, all the processing, all the automation, and then just start over. By doing that, to me, it 
gives you a clear mindset. It's probably a good idea to walk away from the mix for a little bit at this point, just to kind of reset your ears or whatever. Sure. Get a fresh perspective. When I've done that, I have found that I can usually get through the mix with a lot less effort than I was employing before I did the reset. Well, your brain has already been stewing on it for a while, so that helps. Well, there is that, but it's also coming from a point where it's no longer trying to solve issues. Uh -huh. And I'm, I'm kind of coming from, okay, I'm just going to make this mix have the vibe or the feel that it sort of warrants. That's something that it's sort of like a great thing to not be afraid and see it's like, oh, this is failure. I, I can't do that. I got to <laughs> succeed. Because you actually end up arriving a lot quicker, I think. Right. What about you? How often do you do that? Not as often. But of course, as I you're used always to. getting it a ride on the first try. <laughs> <No>. so, <right? laughs> I don't do it as often as I used to either. Having a lot more years of experience helps in that regard. Although, as previously mentioned in other episodes, I am currently going through remixing roughly around 300 tracks of material. Doing so, I'm approaching it by removing everything and starting over. And I think the new mixes that are resulting of that in that process are substantially better. And then there's the occasional remix that I've been doing of older material of mine that has been released. Once in a while, I'm running across a song that I've released already and be like, oh, man, if I could do what I know now with the material I had then, how much better would it be? <laughs> of course, yeah. the answer should hopefully always be so much better, but I have done about six of those. It's been an interesting process to re-examine the original intent and apply new knowledge to it. Yeah, to me that sort of reinforces something that people say all the time, you know, when is the mix done, right? In various iterations of that, that well, the mix is never done, it's just abandoned, or the mix is done when the client signs off on it, or whatever, right? But there's always things that we technically could do without having a deadline, either by an outside source or, or self-imposed, we can always tweak these darn mixes like forever because we can hopefully always improve on something to double back on the resetting of the mix have you found that when you're doing that that you end up with less processing than you originally had yes or is it just yeah that's the same point that i've arrived at as well because i found that well why was i high cutting this track or whatever or whatever it is it's like it's just no just leave it it's fine it sounds good it's not the biggest part of the mix so it sounds great i'm not afraid to start over these days usually mm -hmm. i don't have to pat myself on the back but um <laughs> it's always a good mind game to do with yourself and kind of step back and think about okay well what i'm actually doing with this mix and is there anything else to be done speaking of things that could hopefully make your mixes better, along with the expertise that you get from experience, we've got our Friday Finds. Chris, what have you got this week? A couple of episodes ago, we talked about guitar and how to record them and how to dial up tone and all this kind of stuff. I know on that one, we mentioned 
the PV amps, I think mm -hmm. it's a 6550 and a 5150 with, with Ed and all this kind of stuff. The good people of ML Sound Lab, their Amped series, they've come out with two new, what they call block letter amps, which mm -hmm. are emulations of those. And they call them the 5555 and the 6666. You figure out which ones they're kind of modeling. But I've been playing around with them a little bit, and they sound pretty cool, man. I mean, they sound like high-gain amps. They are my find for this Friday, the amped block letter from ML Sound Lab. What do you have? This week I'm going with a guitar pedal made by Strymon, those wonderful folks Ooh. over there. Yeah, because you know it's going nice. to sound really awesome. It is a new yep. pedal called the Deco. What it does is it emulates the concept of two tape machines in tandem. Interesting. Yes. The idea is that it allows you to get into accurately recreating the type of studio workflow that had two tape decks working in it for all kinds of timed and speed effects, meaning phasing, flanging, chorus, echo, and double tracking effects. And more specifically, they're looking at two particular studios that were the inspiration, Sun Studios and Abbey Road Studios. If you're looking for that vintage, awesome vibe for tape style effects, Strymon Deco is your pedal. Nice. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. You'll need to be on our mailing list in order to be eligible for any future giveaways, and we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. Send us an email at GoldStar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the word mixing and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. Have a good one, Jody. And as always, thanks for listening, everybody. Everybody.